0: Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on our website, womensdeclaration.com, where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 36,822 people from 162 Countries and is supported by 511 organisations. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts from every country continent engaged in defending women's rights. Do join us as a volunteer. Um, I'm really pleased to say that today we have Kara Dansky from the USA. Her talk is going to be the importance of using accurate and precise sex-based language when talking about our rights. And then we have Sarah Mai and Imogen Makepeace from the UK of the Green Women's Declaration. And they are going to talk about this new initiative or reasonably new initiative, uh, a Green Women's Declaration, um, which is has elements very close to the our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, but the same sort of gist and but it's within the Green Party, which is fantastic. And then we're going to hear from Sharon Byrne and Lier Keith uh from WOLF, Women's Liberation Front, giving an update on the fantastic work that they're doing, that WOLF is doing in the United States. So that's completely brilliant as well. The first speaker is Kara Dansky from the USA. She is in the US. She's a lawyer and the president of the US chapter of WDI. She previously served on the board of Women's Liberation Front, WOLF, from 2016 to 2020. And the talk Cara will be doing today is the importance of using accurate and precise sex-based language when talking about our rights. So thank you so much, Cara, and over to you. So today I'm going to read a talk that I gave at the second
1: annual summit of a group called ICONS, the Independent Council on Women's Sports, this past July. Regular attendees of FQT, Feminist Question Time, may remember a presentation given by a woman who went only by mother of swimmer in March of 2022. At that time, she spoke anonymously about how she had to watch her daughter compete against Will Thomas in the Ivy League swimming championships and how angry it made her. That woman's name is Kim Jones. She went on to found icons and she now speaks out proudly under her real name. And I'm especially happy to report that her daughter now plans to go to law school to fight for women's sex-based rights in the law. The summit was an amazing opportunity to meet with plenty of women and some men who are fighting to keep women's sports for women, mostly from the US and the UK, though Australia and New Zealand were represented as well. I'm going to read the talk today exactly as I gave it at ICONS. So for many of us, I won't be sharing anything that we don't already know, but a lot of the arguments I made in this talk were new to that particular audience. A lot of people in the room and watching via live stream at ICONS are new to the fight to protect women's sex-based rights. I viewed my talk as an opportunity to make some arguments about the use of language that I knew would be controversial, but I wanted to get them out there because I think this topic is so important. So while what follows will be old hat to many regular viewers of Feminist Question Time, I'm giving the talk today as I gave it then because I want to provide an example of how those of us who are more seasoned in this area can talk to people who are newer to it. As we get further and further in our fight to get rid of gender identity, we're going to encounter more and more people who are new to it. We have to be ready to engage with them. So with that, here's the talk that I gave at Icons in July. I really want to thank Icons for having me here today to talk about the importance of using accurate sex-based language when talking about women's sports. I realize that some of the things I have to say are going to be a bit controversial and that's okay. There's plenty of room for respectful disagreement. I know that ICONS is focused on many aspects of women's sports, of which keeping male athletes out of them is but one example. I'm here today to focus on that particular aspect of ICONS work and my views about the importance of using accurate and sex-specific language when we talk about it. There are several types of individuals and organizations that are working to protect women's sports. For example, there are non-ideological groups like ICONS and Sex Matters, conservative leaning groups like the Independent Women's Forum, all the amazing female athletes who are here to talk this weekend, and biologists like the great Emma Hilton and Colin Wright, who focus on male athletic advantage, among other things. And then there are the Turks. That's groups like Women's Declaration International. We're leftist radical feminists dedicated to women's sex-based rights, including sports. The heart of our work at WDI is the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, an international document that reaffirms women's sex-based rights, including women's rights to physical and reproductive integrity and the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women and girls that result from the replacement of the category of sex with that of gender identity. The document relies heavily on CEDAW, also known as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. This is a UN Convention that the US has not ratified and to which we are not bound. Still, it contains some principles to which we at WDI think the US and all 50 states ought to adhere. The declaration consists of nine articles, Article 7 of which reaffirms women's rights to the same opportunities as men to participate actively in sports and physical education. It cites CEDAW and goes on to state that CEDAW's mandate that countries ensure the same opportunity to participate actively in sports and physical education should include the provision of opportunities for girls and women to participate in sports and physical education on a single sex basis. To ensure fairness and safety for women and girls, the entry of boys and men who claim to have female gender identities into teams, competitions, facilities, or changing rooms, etc., set aside for women and girls should be prohibited as a form of sex discrimination. We do not compromise on this position. I'd like to suggest three main reasons for always using accurate sex-specific language and dispensing with the language of the gender identity proponents completely. First is the psychological damage that comes with using the language of gender. Second is that any compromise on this ultimately harms women and girls as a sex class. Third is that compromise doesn't even work because proponents of gender identity will never be satisfied with any of it. In 2019, the UK group Fair Play for Women posted a guest post called Pronouns Are Rohypnol. For anyone who doesn't know, Rohypnol refers to what is colloquially known as the date rape drug. In it, the author states, one of the biggest obstacles to halting the stampede over women's rights is pronoun and preferred name courtesy. People severely underestimate the psychological impact to themselves and to others of compliance. So in this piece, she was talking specifically about the use of wrong sex pronouns to refer to people in the third person. But I would argue that the points she's making apply to any use of language that obscures the material reality of sex. To illustrate her point, she talks about something called the Stroop effect, described as a delay in reaction time between congruent and incongruent stimuli. You can take a test online to determine how much longer it takes the average person to recognize various colors, depending on whether the color is written in the color being named or in another color. We can run through it quickly here. So the test goes like this. Looking at the next slide, see what it feels like to say to yourself what each color is. Remember, you're saying to yourself what the color of the word is, not what the word says. Okay, now looking at this slide, see what it feels like to say to yourself what each color is. Again, you're saying to yourself what the color of the word is, not what the word says. So for this, I asked you what it feels like to say to yourself what each color is, and I didn't time us. But when you take the test online, the system will tell you the difference between how long it took you to say the colors out loud when reading the first slide versus how long it took you to say the colors out loud when reading the second slide. For nearly all of us, it takes around twice as long to read the colors in the second slide. And The basic reason why is that our brains take longer to process obvious incongruences. Okay, so getting back to the pronouns, our rohypno article, the author states that when taking the test, you'll find you have to consciously fight the conflict of input to your brain each and every time. And it leaves you confused, distracted, slower, frustrated, and fatigued. Forcing our brains to ignore the evidence of our eyes, to ignore a conflict between what we see and know to be true, and what we're expected to say affects us. She continues, using preferred pronouns does the same. It alters your attention, your speed of processing, your automaticity. You may find that it makes you anxious. You pay less heed to what you want to say and more to what is expected of you. It slows you down, confuses you, makes you less reactive. That's not a good thing. So the author's views, which I share, on why we shouldn't use, those are the author's views, which I share, on why we shouldn't use wrong sex pronouns ourselves. She also encourages readers to do a similar experiment, examining what happens to our brains when we read or hear incongruent things that are written or said by others. For example, take an article you might read about who I will call Will Thomas that describes him using she and her pronouns. Rewrite the article, changing all the pronouns back and changing the name Leah to Will. Knowing that Thomas is male, how do you feel reading an article that pretends he's female versus how you feel reading it accurately? The author encourages readers to ask themselves questions like these as they read both versions. Do you feel anxious? Do you feel uncomfortable? Is your sense of injustice alerted? Her hypothesis is that if the use of wrong sex pronouns is harmless, Reading those two versions of the article shouldn't make a difference, but for most people, it actually does. So why are pronouns Rohypnol, according to her, instead of some other substance that obscures our perceptions? Why doesn't she say that pronouns are LSD or magic mushrooms, for example? She explains that at least for women, preferred pronouns dull your defenses. They change your inhibitions. They're meant to. You've had a lifetime's experience learning to be alert to him and relax to her, and for good reason. This instinctive response keeps you safe. It's not even a conscious thing. It's like your hair's standing on end. Your subconscious brain is helping you not get eaten by the saber toothed tiger that your eyes haven't noticed yet. The article concludes with this. I want to be alert. I want others to be alert. I want people to see the real picture And I want those instinctive reactions that we feel when something is wrong to be unblunted, undulled by this cheap but effective psychological trick. I feel like I owe this to myself, and I absolutely owe it to other women. And more than anything, I owe this to girls. I don't want to play even the tiniest part in grooming them to disregard their natural protective instincts. Those instincts are there for a reason to keep them safe. They need those instincts intact and sharp. That's why I won't use preferred pronouns. Using rahipnol on others isn't a courtesy. Again, she's talking about pronouns here, but I would argue the same analysis applies to the use of any language that obscures the material reality of sex. That includes phrases like transgender athletes if we're talking about male athletes. It includes the phrase transgender prisoners when we're talking about male inmates. It includes any and all language that concedes the idea that there is a sex class other than female and male, or that sex isn't real, or that it might matter. My second reason for insisting on using accurate sex-based language is that any concession to gender identity is an attack on women and girls as a sex class. Women as a class have always been oppressed by men as a class, regardless of the benign behaviors of any individual men on the basis of sex. And many of us are quite angry about it. There's a reason that suffragists had to fight for the right to vote after being denied the franchise for centuries, and that countless men and institutions fought hard to stop them. There's a reason that all over the world, men beat, rape, torture, and murder women and girls at astronomical rates. There's a reason that lesbians are routinely targeted for harassment or worse. There's a reason that men used to burn women for allegedly engaging in witchcraft. It was not on the basis of identity. No one bothered to ask women which pronouns they preferred. It was on the basis of sex. And now the entire gender identity movement denies that sex even exists or that it might matter. A couple of years ago, author Andrew Sullivan published a piece called, quote, A Truce Proposal in the Trans War. In it, he proposed a number of compromises on what he framed as the transgender issue. I wrote a response piece, which I doubt he read because he probably has no idea who I am. In my response, I said, I've been thinking a lot about compromise and what it might look like in the context of the fight for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. The question I keep arriving at is this, why on earth should women be required to compromise when it comes to our own humanity? My concluding paragraph was this, Those of us who are interested in finding compromise here must ask ourselves, how much of our humanity are we willing to sacrifice? If our answer to that question is greater than zero, we have to acknowledge that we're simply willing to leave our humanity and the very nature of reality at the door. No thanks, Andrew, I won't be compromising today. None of that has changed in the two years since. Lastly, I want to address the frequently made argument that it's important to use the language of gender identity in order to help people understand what's happening and to get them to listen, because if we insist on using sex-specific language, they'll tune us out. I understand this argument, but I think it's misplaced. I have learned in my eight years of working on this issue that there is no amount of compromise that will ever appease the proponents of gender identity, none. Radical feminist Mary Daly once said, I know that I will be punished just as much for being an itty-bitty feminist as for going the whole way, and so I go the whole way. I feel the same way about this. There is no amount of compromise that will appease the proponents of gender identity. They're going to punish us anyway, so we may as well go the whole way. By the way, we really can do this. I was once invited to address a group of Republican women in a fairly major U.S. city And I was happy to accept the invitation, even though I'm not a Republican or a conservative. We were chatting and one woman asked me what we're going to do about the problem of transgender athletes competing in women's sports. And I said, okay, we can talk about that. But first I want to ask you what you mean by transgender athletes. The room fell silent and tense. Then I asked, do you mean men and boys? She paused and then said cautiously, I didn't think we were allowed to say that. My response in the moment was basically that if you mean men and boys, you can just say men and boys. The sense of relief in the room was palpable, but I thought the interaction was fascinating. This woman, a political conservative, felt so socially and culturally compelled to deny material reality that she didn't think we were allowed, her word, to name it. We've got to get past this if we're going to have any hope of preserving reality, including the reality that women are female and men are male. And finally, I am finding that the people who compromise on language aren't even getting very far anyway. I know she's a bit controversial and I understand why, but I don't think it can be denied that some of the most successful women fighting this fight are women like Kelly J. Keene in the UK who never compromises on language. She has arguably done more to raise awareness of this topic and to get women talking about it than many of us. And she does it using accurate sex-specific language without compromise. If insisting on accurate sex-specific language is good enough for Kelly J, it's good enough for me. Okay, so that was the end of my talk at ICONS. And I just wanna note for this audience that I know there are a ton of women, radical feminists in particular, who insist on accurate sex-based language. Not only Kelly J, who doesn't call herself a feminist, Julia Long, for example, is one of the women I admire most on this front, and I know that it was Julia herself who persuaded Kelly J several years ago to dispense with any use of the language of gender identity. I used Kelly J in my talk at ICONS because I knew the ICONS audience members were likely to recognize her image. I'm very happy to report that as the session was closing and we were all milling about and chatting, one woman approached me and said, "'Okay, you've changed my mind.' That was only one woman, and I have no idea whether I changed any other minds. But even changing one mind is progress. We'll get there.
0: Why do you use the term TERF to describe women's rights advocates? Isn't it a slur designed by the proponents of gender identity?
1: So thanks for the question. I know it's controversial, and I saw plenty of chat about it. Here's the thing. At least in the States, the term "turf." is being used to describe leftist radical feminist women in this political fight. I didn't used to use it because I viewed it as a slur, but then something changed and Dave Chappelle proclaimed that he is quote, team turf. And what that did is it introduced the term into the political zeitgeist. There's a woman named Pamela Paul who writes for the New York Times, who wrote a piece about JK Rowling and she used the term turf. The thing is, We are so frequently lumped in with conservatives that we need a word to describe ourselves as leftist radical feminists who are fighting for women and girls as a sex class. Like it or not, that term has become turf. Kelly J uses it, J.K. Rowling uses it. And if we're going to be able to distinguish ourselves from conservatives, which I think is vitally important if we're going to win this from a leftist radical feminist perspective, we need the word. And if that's the word that's in the political zeitgeist, That's the word I'm gonna use.
0: How are the press in the USA doing on this? Are they shifting to use sex-based language or are they using pronouns? It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible.
1: Uh, There are almost no media outlets that will use accurate sex pronouns. In in the mainstream, you know, we've got Redux, which is founded by and and run by feminists, and they use accurate sex pronouns. They're just a smaller outlet. Uh, the post millennial uses accurate sex based language, but they're also a smaller outlet. I, I'm I'm happy to report that the National Review, which is a conservative leaning outlet for sure, they use accurate sex based language. At least one author there, Madeline Kearns, a Scottish woman who lives in the states uses accurate sex-based language, but for the for the most part, all of the media remains completely captured, including most conservative media. So including, for example, Fox News, they use wrong sex pronouns all the time. It's really irritating. I expect it from the mainstream lefty media at this point, um, but I just think it's appalling that even conservative media won't
0: use accurate sex-based language. Sarah Mai from the Green Women's Declaration And Sarah Mai is a member of the Green Party of England and Wales, became politically active, active politically because of her party's disregard for women's rights. And Imogen Makepeace, who's a Green Party member since 2015, elected representative for her community on two councils and volunteer member of the Disciplinary Committee of the Green Party, England and Wales. Um, Imogen's history includes being arrested on the nuclear silos at Greenham Common, radical feminist activists in the 1980s, XR, that's Extinction Rebellion Activism, and is a mother and grandmother. So thank you so much, um, uh, Sarah and Imogen, and congratulations. I'll say that before you start on on the uh, Green um, Women's Declaration. Over to you for your talk.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking to amazing women across the world. We want to tell you about the Green Women's Declaration for Sex-Based Rights. It's something that we formed through the Green Party of England and Wales. The Green Party of England and Wales is a medium-sized political party counting membership. There are about 50,000 of us. It's a small party. If you count representation, we have one MP over the last 10 to 15 years the focus of the green party has been distorted by loud voices from a minority who have acquired influence the demands to center men in our policies has increased last year a group of green party women came together in cardiff at filia and we decided to get up a declaration of women and girls sex based rights That would form a solid and recognisable base camp from which we would support, encourage, challenge the members of our party to push back and reclaim our territory. Over the last 12 months, we have drafted and redrafted, picked up ideas, rejected ideas, listened to each other, some of us took time out while others picked up the slack. We heard how labour women worked towards their declaration, and we kept a focus on our destination. It has been a master class, a mistress class, in feminist collaboration. I am immensely proud not only of the outcome, we achieved 1000 signatories in the first month, but also of the process. So here we have it, the history, trans women are women, trans men are men, and all non-binary identities are valid. This became policy at conference in 2016 by a vote taken in a room of just over 500 people With a majority of about 20. In 2021 a similar vote failed to agree to GPEW aligning with the Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women principles. And women are not mentioned in the party's policies for rights and responsibilities. Some members are subjected to name calling and harassment through social media, for sharing posts, discussing doubts, and raising questions about self-identification of gender. Some members are suspended, and even expelled by the disciplinary process. Some members are now challenging the process through the courts, using the four data rule, worthy of respect in a democratic society. And we're challenging that to, to mean worthy of respect in a political party. The Green Women's Declaration early group formed in autumn 22, in response to gender critical voices being silenced. Our local party membership is broadly ignorant of the problems. Most people just want to campaign on environmental issues. So it's been quite hard to raise this conversation amongst our colleagues. It's formed to provide solidarity and protection, to show that our beliefs are not a minority view, to provide support for those who've been subjected to the most extreme harassment and discrimination, those who've been sanctioned by the Green Party disciplinary system, and pilloried as transphobes on social media. I hope you'll you'll have a look at our declaration website. This is the preamble. Members and supporters of the Green Party of England and Wales are fully committed to the party's core values to address the climate and ecological emergencies and transform society for the benefit of all and the planet. We believe that democratic participation and accountability should be our organising principles and are deeply concerned that voices speaking up for women's hard-won sex-based rights are being silenced in the Green Party. And we know that globally women as a sex are disproportionately affected by climate change and environmental degradation. And their empowerment is essential to our work as environmentalists.
3: This is just a rough um, sort of like timeline on where we've got from um, October, 2022, when the Green Party members met up at Philia and decided something had to be done. And from there, we went to um, organize a working group and we had assistance from the Labour um, Women's Declaration group, which we're very grateful. So it took us a bit of time to to draw up the declaration and we we were working very much um, just amongst the women and in secret so that you know we couldn't be sabotaged early on um, so once it was drawn up within what set about finding our signatories so by the 4th of august when we launched we had 155 um founding signatories um, and as of this morning we've got 1101 signatories so that you know it's less than a month and we're really pleased with that result um, so, what was been happening in the the Green Party at the same time was on the second of August, the Green Party Women's Group had an emergency general meeting. Um, that was to make changes to the constitution to allow for electronic ballots and elections, and consultative decision making. Um, which would bring us in line with party policy. But also at that meeting was a consultation with the members regarding an appropriate response to the members concerns that those with gender critical views are being discriminated against. So the results of of that call out are are currently being compiled. And uh, as you'll see on the timeline, the 21st of August, we've had um, the first court case for Shara Ali the, the, the Green Party of England and Wales, which was a week-long discrimination tribunal. Um, you can follow that on tribunal tweets. It's very, very interesting. But it's um, we won't know the results of that till October. So the, the next steps was um, with the court case, the declaration and the Green Party women's emergency general meeting have revealed a need for us to gather our thoughts outline our theory of change and define a strategic pathway forward as a collective. Um, we aim to work cohesively so we can use our limited resources to maximum effect. there are about 12 really strong members in the group of 26 that are, are getting working on the declaration. We've agreed on our vision. And our vision is to reclaim the Green Party of England and Wales as a party for women and planet. The Twitter campaign has been very strong and is signalled by for women and planet. Um, The strategy has always been to also been to ask open questions, um, to engage with people. So Twitter has been where our main campaigning has been going on, but we've also now got a Facebook page and was hoping on Facebook to have more conversations. But it's also a pathway to getting to the declaration and signing it. So we've agreed on our mission, which is for the Green Party of England and Wales to adopt the preamble and eight listed principles of the Green Woman's declaration as policy and act of reality throughout the whole organisation. So that's the declaration summary of addressing climate and ecological emergency to transform society for the benefit of all life and champion sex-based rights. And our eight um, principles are sex is real, sex-based language is vital, sex and gender identity are different, female-only spaces are necessary, freedom of belief and expression, the right for women to self-organize, lesbians are same-sex attracted, protection from abuse, discrimination and harassment. Judging by some of the comments of the signatories on the Green Women's Declaration, adaption of of the declaration by the Green Party of England and Wales will bring a lot of women and allies back to the party. And people have also signaled that they might be prepared to vote for Green candidates. We have our work cut out for us and we are hopeful that we can create the change that is needed. And we're also working towards collaborating with other parties who have their own declarations for women's-based sex rights. And anyway, we thank you very much for having us along today to introduce our declaration. To you. thank you.
0: Yeah. And what do you think changed things? Like, why? Why has the sort of the the group formed and this critical mass of gender critical greens um, formed?
2: I think there is there is some kind of a sea change happening. We're, we're seeing various um, high profile cases that are changing um, attitudes, and that perhaps brings those people who are s- sort of a little bit unsure about where they want to place themselves, brings them a little bit closer to our position, and um, allows them to speak and think and um, and perhaps act in uh, in accordance with with where their their beliefs are um it's difficult to know it's 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 a combination of many things i think but um we just have to keep doing all those things all of us all the time and um we will eventually bring sense it will eventually prevail
0: Okay, so we're going to go to our next speakers, who are Sharon Byrne and Lier Keith. Um, Sharon Byrne is Wolf's, which is the Women's Liberation Front, based in the United States, new executive director. And Lier Keith is also uh uh from Wolf, and she's been a radical feminist for 40 years. She's author of seven books, including The Vegetarian Myth. Food, Justice and Sustainability, which has been called the most important ecological book of this generation. She's co-author with Derek Jensen and Max Wilbert of Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. She lives in Northern California with giant trees and giant dogs and has also been arrested six times for acts of political resistance. So thank you so much Leah and Sharon and Over to you. Our first update is
4: that Wolf is 10 years old this month, which is hard to believe, but it's here, 10 years old. And I'm absolutely in awe over what this tiny band of feminist mischief makers has accomplished because we've managed to get radical feminist arguments in front of all three branches of the federal government. And that has never happened before in my lifetime. So happy birthday, Wolf. Um, So our big case right now is Chandler versus CDCR. And CDCR is the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. It's the prison system. So Wolf has taken the state of California, the prisons to court. Um, uh, We're representing four women who are currently imprisoned. And so this is just a brief synopsis of where the case is. So this law, SB 132, um, it let incarcerated men who self-identify as transgender or non-binary or literally any other boutique identity that you might invent, um, request a transfer to the women's prison. And when this passed, over 300 men immediately requested transfer. And fully one third of these men are, I'll let you guess, yes, sex offenders. One third of them, sex offenders. The women are now in hell. Um, They have experienced sexual assault, harassment threats and psychological trauma from these men as anyone with any common sense could have told you. So Wolf is arguing that the law is unconstitutional, especially because it's, quote, cruel and unusual punishment. And that's language directly from our the Eighth Amendment to our Constitution, which protects us against cruel and unusual punishment from the hands of the state. If anyone thinks that locking women into eight by 10 cells with rapists isn't cruel and unusual punishment, I just don't know what to say. So um, SB 132 also violates other constitutional rights freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and also the promise we have of equal protection under the law, which was our 14th amendment. So for all those reasons, it's unconstitutional. Um, So then a lot didn't happen because of COVID. But there was also a report that the CDCR commissioned um, from a, a professional group that was hired, and they're called the Moss Group, and they were hired to look into how SB 132 was being implemented. And the report is worth reading if you enjoy that experience of your head exploding with rage, right? The women were called liars for speaking out about rape. And I'm going to give you a quote. So PREA is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So anytime you hear about a PREA allegation, um, that's a rape allegation or a PRIA violation, it means that there was uh, rape and, and the people weren't protected from it. So a pre allegation, just hear rape allegation. And here's the quote. Quote, many believe that there has been an increase in PRIA allegations made in bad faith coinciding with SB 132. So the Mosque group claims that women's very real concern about rape is based on quote, myths, anxiety or fear and other times by misperceptions and misunderstanding. So it's just a misperception that he shoved his penis into her body. And this is why I will never stop fighting these wretched men and their insane movement. So the authors dismiss the rapes as quote, rumors. They argue that women need to work harder to overcome their quote, bias related to personal beliefs. None of the many women who have been assaulted or threatened were interviewed for the report, not one. And neither was anyone at Wolf or a woman to woman or the other groups that are advocating for women. So that was the Moss report. Um, also a bunch of men then demanded to be allowed into our case as interveners. Now interveners are um, people who are allowed in as full parties. They can do anything in the case that the original parties can do. So they can file motions and briefs. They can request discovery. Um, they're copied on all the official communications. And courts will grant petitions to intervene if the applicant has a quote, significant protectable interest, and if the existing parties are not going to adequately represent their interests. So in this case, you've got Wolf um, trying to defend these women. You have the state of California defending the law that they passed. And now there's this group of men saying, yeah, but neither one of these people is, is in our interest. And the court does this so that it can be a more effective use of legal issues. Um, So it's like, okay, well, now there's three people who are going to have some argument about this. Let's put them all together and see how we can sort it out in the quickest way possible. So just this Monday, these four men were granted full standing in our case, along with a group called the Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project, T-G-J-I-P. That's got to be one of the worst acronyms I've ever seen. I've got no idea how you're going to pronounce that. We, on the other hand, have a really cool acronym because it spells wolf. Um, Anyway, their legal team is the Transgender Law Center, as you might imagine, Lambda Legal, of course, and naturally the ACLU. So the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, once upon a time, a bedrock institution, fighting to protect civil rights. I have never agreed with them about everything. There's always gonna be the pornography issue, but uh, once upon a time was a long time ago. The ACLU has been completely captured by the authoritarian left. The group that was once famous for its absolutist position on free speech is now openly calling for book burnings. And I'm not exaggerating, that's on their Twitter feed. So the judge granted their petition. Um, They're now full parties in the case. Their argument is that SB 132 needs full implementation. So the other 300 men who want in, they need to be allowed in now. Uh, Men cannot be kept out of women's prisons. Their criminal history is immaterial. Um, Even men who are a known threat to women can't be kept out. They don't care that a third of these men are convicted sex offenders. So is it good or bad that they are interveners? Well, it's some of both. Uh, The ACLU means that this case we will get way more press than we ever could have generated. They have their own little media machine, um, but they're, cause they're huge. And when I say huge, their budget last year was $400 million, that's the ACLU. They're literally 400 times the size of Wolf. Um, I find myself referencing David and Goliath a lot. The thing to know is that David won. So putting men in women's prisons is not acceptable to the American public. Every time that there has been polling about this, uh, it's an absolutely losing issue. We win. The normies are with us. Um, So more press can only be good. Our problem is that people don't believe us. And the number of times I've had to have conversations, yeah, they really are putting men in women's prisons. And the other person says, no, that's not possibly There's no way that's happening. No, it really is happening. Let me show you. And I show them. And I've had people cry uh, when they've actually absorbed the information that this is in fact happening and we're not making it up. So really, the more that we can get this in front of the public, the more we're going to win. So that's good for our side, that it's the ACLU. The other thing on our side, um, we may or may not be calling this collection of individuals and groups the clown car. Um, if we were calling them the clown car, here's why. The co-founder of the Transgender Law Center is one Dylan Vade. I don't know what it is about guys named Dylan. He's Dylan Vade. And this is a quote from Dylan. Get ready. Gender is a much is much bigger than a line. It is at least a three-dimensional space, but not a Cartesian one, not a space created by three lines. There are no lines, no ordering. There's just space, an infinite space, a space that allows motion. I have gender claustrophobia and need a big space. I do not like it when people tell me I have to identify as female or male. I do not like it when people tell me that that because it's not radical enough, I cannot identify as male or female. I need a big space in which everyone's gender has a space and in which our genders are not hierarchically ordered. Thus, a conception that works for me is a galaxy. This is what they're going to argue in court. I say, bring it. So that's the Chandler case. You can read a lot more details about it, but you can read all about that on the Wolf website, including um, first-person testimonies from some of the women. Because when I said they're in hell, I'm not exaggerating. Um, Okay, so the other big piece of news, we have a new executive director, um, Sharon Byrne. Sharon is a nonprofit and government relations expert. She's currently the president of the Santa Barbara United Nations Association, and she served as a delegate to the UN Conference on the Status of Women. She's worked on human trafficking and disaster recovery. She's also on the board of the Santa Barbara Women's Health Coalition and has been a vocal advocate for women's reproductive sovereignty, making her a perfect fit for Wolf. She's brave, she's bold, she's Sharon Byrne. I want to
5: talk to you about two things that we're doing in the united states one is the women's bill of rights we have this week managed to get it passed in the fourth state so we i know right it's amazing so it's now that makes kansas tennessee oklahoma which was august 1st of this month and now um, nebraska and i will tell you there is, it is an interesting split in the united states Kara alluded to it Leah has talked about it as well Obviously we have a a two party system. There are times when I feel like it'd be better if we had 13, but um, we're stuck with two. So what we've got is fragmented media. um, And we also have got fragmented government, right? So everything is a, a straight partisan play. It's left or right here, left or right. It's really hard division. When most of us don't feel that hard division. What we're seeing is Republican states taking up the Women's Bill of Rights. And it's not the Women's Bill of Rights the way that WDI's declaration is, for example. What it does it codifies the word woman into law, right, and sex into law and, you know, defines that we are females at birth, biologically, into law, which is amazing that we are having to do this in the United States, but I'm sure you understand that, you know, these words have been uh, absolutely mauled, as Carol pointed out, in the last few years, so What tends to happen is the Women's Bill of Rights, Republicans tend to like it because they know who the women are because they're very busy with the abortion bans also in our country, as you know. Um, The left hates them, considers Women's Bill of Rights such a, a Republican play. Some of our governors have executive powers, and so they can pass laws very quickly by executive order. So we've had two of ours do this by executive order. Others have gone through the legislature. In California, we have a very different experience. And I I was up till like two last night writing this up for Lear and company. Something seismic is kind of happening out here. So we ended up getting, you know, we are 36 million people in California. We have a full-time legislature with 120 representatives. They love to all make names for themselves by writing laws and bills. We took a heavy um, stance against some really egregiously egregiously bad bills that are coming through the legislature in California this year. Uh, one of ours looks like it won, which is to try to, it, to make child sex trafficking a serious felony under California law, which we are all shocked it, it isn't already. Um, uh, <clears throat> looks like that one's going to go to a floor vote. So our legislative session ends September 14th. So this is a very active time when a lot of the bills are coming through. Some of the bills, like I say, are egregiously bad. One, <clears throat> Would allow the state to take custody of children if the parent refuses to affirm the gender and 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 let them uh, start to transition medically. Uh, others um, would uh, make all the school bathrooms in California now gender neutral, right? So we and so Wolf took us down on quite a few of the the worst bills. It looks like most of them made it out of committee yesterday and are heading to a floor vote. It doesn't mean they're going to pass. Um, They could die on the floor. But it is really important that we stay really tight with this legislation through September 14th, because unfortunately, California also tends to be five to 10 years ahead of the rest of the states. So what we do here. Tends to get exported to the rest of the country, so this is kind of a this is kind of a really big deal for us. Like we really like kind of like Canada, we have gone very far off the rails on the gender train in California. Yesterday, a parents group that is huge and has had a lot of fired energy. This is a newly peaking demographic, right? These, these are newly peaking folks. Parents groups in California filed three ballot initiatives yesterday that will be on the November 2024 ballot. That could overturn almost all of this. <laughs> so, you know, we tend to do things by voter referendum. And I think this is actually really interesting because rather like the voting on abortion rights, we are finding that state legislatures do something rather different than their voters in a voting booth on an issue. We find that they they break quite differently. Legislatures tend to be harder, more partisan, write you know, worse laws. Whereas when you put something to the voters, you tend to get a very different result. So I am really hopeful we're going to look at the ballot initiatives they, you know, and see if there's something that we want to get on board with. But it's, it's really exciting to see the sort of new demographics springing up in the United States of enraged and engaged parents who are super frustrated with the way trans ideology is being pushed in their schools and pushed on their kids. We see a lot of energy there in California and hoping that we'll be able to leverage that uh, going forward and roll it out across the rest of the country. So that is that is the update from from Wolf, um, and we are really grateful to have this time with you,
0: and to be able to get to share um, this news with you. Thank you. How much are the Democrats influenced by pharmaceutical company donations, and are the corporations who were involved in the oxy and fentanyl drug pushing related also to related also to selling puberty blockers?
4: I don't think that the um pharmaceuticals who did fentanyl. I don't think that they're the same ones who do the hormone blockers. I think those are different corporations, but I don't know that it matters much. It's going to be this enormous medical scandal, right? It's yeah I, yeah, go ahead, Sharon.
5: Oh, I think that I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is rather like the UK. Uh, there's a lot of money for the orgs that used to do work more on women's rights, gay rights, lesbians rights, you know, who have now moved right and switch sides and they're just pushing trans all day. So, for example, uh, Planned Parenthood here, when they send you mailers these days, don't mention the word woman. You know, they're using the language that we all hate, like chest feeding people and, you know, birthing people. We You know, we just hate this language. Um, probably like you do, but Planned Parenthood is getting a lot of money for being, I think, now that the second or third largest uh, distributor in the United States of puberty blockers. So this is kind of a, you know, there's it, it's where does that money go, right? So I don't know that it's so much that it's the left or the right or Congress that's being so influenced by big pharma. It's that a lot of money is plowing into orgs who tend to advise or push legislation on elected officials, right? And I think you saw a very similar dynamic in the UK. And I think the same thing happened in Australia and New Zealand and Canada. And then that's who gets this stuff across the line, right? And the public's not really invited to the debate. Um, So I think that's where we're seeing a lot of influence coming through from the pharmaceutical industry.
1: I just wanted to say that in terms of what Sharon talked about with pharma fueling the organizations, the organizations don't hide this right? So I'm currently working on a book, hopefully it will be out this fall, which is really intended to expose the extent to which the Democrats and the cultural left know what they're doing. And so in the process of writing that, I dug up a lot of information and all these lefty organizations, including Planned Parenthood, are very open about what they call their corporate partners. And they list them on the website. They provide all of the information about their corporate partners. And of course, their corporate partners are overwhelmingly pharma and biotech so this is like happening
0: in plain sight they're not even hiding it what Leah or sharon think of the new law in texas to to stop puberty blockers that's from mika
4: um i think that at this point children need these kinds of laws for protection because clearly their parents are throwing them into it um the part i disagree with is where um there's like way too much state control here in terms of taking kids away from their parents. I think that it's just gone way too far in that direction. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm 50, 50 on it because I think that the, I think that the medical profession has to be stopped since they're clearly no longer doing no harm. You know, they've completely blown past the Hippocratic oath in this case. So, and for that in that part, I, I agree with it, but I, this, all this business about, turning parents in and, you know, potentially taking children away from their parents, unless you can really prove, you know, a deeper level of abuse. I just, I don't think that's a good territory for us to be getting into because it's happening on the other side as well. Right. Where people in blue States are having their threatening to have their children taken away um, because they won't do this to their kids. And I just don't think the state has any business getting involved in, you know, taking children away from their parents, unless there's, there is actual abuse going on out there. And that's, you know, those are the kids that need protection. Um, but this this is just, I think it's gone way too far. And so it's just more polarizing and it's making people terrified and it's making them believe things that aren't true too, because, you know, you feel like you're under attack. Now we've, oh, there's a trans genocide. We keep hearing this. And now of course, you know, the real fruit loops are gonna take that and run with it. So I just, I don't think it's helping to go that far. With the with this legislation.